one of the characteristics about the third world is that labor is very cheap probably because there are so many bodies to go around so i think at least in my own country in india you know it's not at all unusual even for um middle and lower middle class people to have servants in the home to do a lot of the routine kinds of work like washing and cleaning and when we took a trip as a family in 1984 to india towards the end of our trip i remember we were out for a walk one evening and sham suggested to me that it might be a good idea to give a fairly sizable monetary gift to many of the servants who had worked in my uh, brother's home where we stayed well i agreed uh, but the conversation actually went on to something much more significant at that point because my wife wanted to know how come i didn't think of it <laughs> in fact she was a little bit more specific and she said how come you are able to give hundreds and thousands of dollars to suffering people in africa and other places that you've never seen but you don't make suggestions about people that you can see right here and we talked quite a bit about it and we came to the conclusion that some people are by and large motivated by what they know to be true whereas others are by and large motivated by what they see to be true and this same kind of dichotomy applies when it comes to this matter of uh, global vision and ministering to the needs of people not only in the material sense but those who are spiritually poor like the last that we were talking about this this morning in the morning series on global vision i've been trying to uh, stimulate us by truth to be able to see the world as god sees it now largely we can only see it with our minds eye because literally we are not going to be going to all of these places that we're going to be talking about and hopefully a gradually clearing picture in our mind will stimulate us to some kind of action to work where the gap is the widest the gap at home though although lot narrower as we saw this morning is nonetheless an existent gap and in attempting to think globally overseas we can never afford to forget the spiritually needed we see right here evangelism has got to continue in jerusalem while we are continuing to focus on the uttermost corners of the earth as well now having said that we have to realize though that the nature of evangelism must necessarily be different here at home overseas primarily because of the fact that multitudes of people have not heard mass evangelism has been and will continue to be one of the primary ways of gathering in the harvest at least in those parts of the world where public proclamation of the gospel is not uh, ruled out by the political authorities in this country though largely because of a super saturation with the words of the gospel because of the thousands of radio and television stations etc mass evangelism generally does not produce significant fruit it all it there's always individual exceptions but generally speaking much of the people who go to these things are already christians anyway similarly confrontational types of evangelism knocking on doors cold calling etc again any research that has been done suggests that uh, where relational ties are not there they usually isn't lasting fruit but by sharp contrast in this relationally starved society the most effective forms of evangelism are those which involve one on one or small group type of con- uh, relational uh, context and the proclamation of the gospel in that sense and last year i think we took several sunday evenings to look at various aspects of this thing called lifestyle or relational evangelism and we saw there were three aspects to it it involved the character of the messenger it involved the compassion of the messenger and it involved the content of the message the character of the messenger we learned built credibility for the message the compassion of the messenger provoked or motivated action on the part of the person who was listening so those two things are indispensable in relational evangelism character and compassion 
But eventually, the gospel has to boil down to content. And somewhere along the line, we have to get the message across. It is when we come to the content stage of evangelism that the door becomes open for questions that people can ask in order to increase their understanding of the message. Some of these questions can be tough questions, capable of answers to various degrees of satisfaction. And uh, T.B. Thomas, who's the uh, head of our evangelism program in our schools at Canadian Bible College and the seminary, has collated for us the 12 or 13 most commonly asked tough questions in evangelism. And the little green insert in your bulletin, what I've done is taken those 13 questions and grouped similar ones together and arranged it in three sets of three messages each. And I've, the dates are approximate. Don't hold me to them. I will try my best to cover them in that sequence. And I would encourage you to keep this in your Bibles and in your conversations when these questions come up. Even if you don't have the answer, it gives you a very natural opportunity to say, maybe some Sunday evening you can come with me because we're going to be talking about such and such a subject. That's one way in which you can use this. The other way you can use it is to plan to be here yourself to learn the answers to some of these questions. You might say, looking at the sheet, just a minute, there's a very important question that I run into all the time that isn't even here. Well, will you please write it down on an encouragement card or on a piece of paper and slip it under my door anytime during this time and I will try and pick up some of those questions as we go along as well. Now, some people have an objection to this kind of approach where they say, just a minute, our job is to proclaim the gospel. It is the Holy Spirit's job to persuade people of the truth. So where is the need to answer all these tough questions? Simply tell them the gospel and that's it. After all, doesn't the doctrine of total depravity tell us that natural man cannot understand spiritual truth anyway? So why bother with all these answering questions? Simply proclaim the gospel. Well, first of all, the doctrine of total depravity does not mean human reason has been done away with. Properly understood, it means that there is no area of the human being that has been left unaffected by the fall. Reason also has been marred, or as the theologians like to put it, human reason unaided cannot grasp the truth. But having said that, we have to realize that giving answers to questions, legitimate questions, appealing to human reason is part of the process of proclaiming the gospel. And it is part of the process by which the Holy Spirit illumines the minds and the hearts of that are darkened in order to understand the central truths of the Christian faith, which is the need for repentance and forgiveness of sin through faith in Christ's death and resurrection. And just in case anybody has any doubts that this is in fact a biblical way of looking at it, just listen to these few verses from the 17th chapter of Acts on what Paul did in Thessalonica, where we know a very, very vibrant model church resulted. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said, and some of the Jews were persuaded. Five different words. He reasoned, he explained, he proved, he proclaimed, and they were persuaded. So I think it leaves us without any doubt that all of those elements are important in the proclamation of the gospel. I think the best way to see this matter of answering tough questions is that it is a necessary step in removing roadblocks so the individual can be clearly confronted with the cross of Jesus Christ. That is, of course, the ultimate aim. We're not just playing intellectual games when we try and answer questions. We've got to lead them to the cross, but sometimes we have to clear the roadblocks to get them there. At the same time, we do need some discernment, for in many cases, at least I should say in some cases, 
Intellectual questions can often be a cover-up for a moral problem. As one man put it very well, we owe it to every honest seeker to cater to their intellectual integrity, but we do not owe anything to anyone to cater to their intellectual arrogance. My brother-in-law Ravi told me a story in this that illustrates the point very well of a young man who came to him at the end of one of his messages and said, I would like you to prove to me scientifically and psychologically and uh, something else that he said that, that Jesus Christ really was Lord. And Ravi, with a lot of discernment, asked him this question. He said, but I have a question to ask you first. If I do it, will you bow down to Jesus Christ and acknowledge Him as Savior and Lord? And the guy said, no, I won't. He said, in that case, I refuse to answer your questions. This is exactly the method that Jesus used. Whenever the Pharisees, prompted usually by intellectual arrogance, asked him questions, he said, I'm not going to answer you. So I think we need to, on the one hand, understand the need to answer questions, but we need some discernment. Cater to intellectual honesty, there's no need to cater to intellectual arrogance. Okay, with that, we're ready to phrase our first question that we're going to take a look at today. And isn't Christianity narrow-minded when we say that Jesus Christ is the only way? This question pops up in many different forms. Last week, some of you may remember reading an article by Tom Harper in The Star, where he was taking the Christian Heritage Party to task. And the reason he was all upset with this party was their stated intent to make the biblical revelation the platform uh, or the basis for their political platform. And Harper was all upset because he says in Canada today is a multicultural society with all kinds of religions in it. It is the height of arrogance for a political party to claim the Bible as its foundation for its platform. That's one form in which you run into this charge of narrow-mindedness. Another form in which this question comes is the famous uh, three blind men and elephant scenario. You know, one blind man gets a hold of the tail and says, well, this, this is just an elephant, is a snake. Another blind man gets a hold of the uh, foot or the leg and says the elephant uh, the, is a tree. Yet another person comes up against the rather massive flank of the elephant and says the elephant is a wall. And so people say, well, in that same way, isn't it possible for different religions and different people to get a hold of different parts of God and then they are all equally valid but equally incomplete descriptions? Now, it sounds good, but there are two major fallacies with that argument. The first one is the elementary. The second one is much more fundamental. The elementary one simply is to assume that God can be equated to the elephant. I mean, in the sense that God can be divided up into parts and described in part without losing the whole. But much more important is the fact that nobody, everybody forgets to mention that all three were blind. If their eyes were open, they would see the whole picture. And when they see the whole picture, it would never simply be an addition to what they already saw. When we see a complete elephant, they won't say, oh, it's a snake and an elephant. Or it's a wall and an elephant. Or it's a tree and an elephant. They suddenly realize that it's an elephant and it is not a tree, a wall or a snake. That's very important for us to keep that thing in mind. To another group of people take a completely different approach. They don't use all these analogies. They simply say, look, there are all kinds of people who visualize God in many different ways and they have legitimate experiences that allow them to live a meaningful life. Doesn't that show that God can be seen in many different ways and we cannot claim exclusiveness? Whichever form in which you encounter this question, the basic truth is Christianity is narrow-minded. How are we going to respond? Now may I say at the outset, what I want to do in the rest of this thing is not to be treated as a four-point or a five-point thing that you just spout out automatically every time this question comes up. At the heart of relational evangelism is the assumption that we've taken some time to know the people, generally speaking. Although we don't always have an opportunity to cultivate a relationship with everyone who asks us questions. 
But if primarily evangelism is being carried out in the context of a relationship, we've taken time to know the individual. And so we need to be sensitive and tailor certain aspects of this answer to the particular needs of the person. So rather look at what I'm going to say tonight as a basic framework to address the question of narrow-mindedness, exclusiveness versus universality, and then apply it. And may I say one other thing? The longer you keep on trying to do this in practice, the better you will get at using the material. One of the key things about apologetics and answering questions is that if you simply let them remain at the level of theory, you will never get a grasp on them. They are there for you to use, no matter how bumblingly we use it, no matter how much we blow it, as we continue to use it, we will get more and more skilled at tailoring the answer to the individual needs of the person. So hopefully in all of these messages you're coming not only to learn, but also to use what you learn. The first thing we have to realize in developing an answer to this question is that we cannot deny the reality of any experience. And we ought not to. Because, you see, an experience by its very nature is real in the sense that it happened to the person. So that, for example, if an individual were to say, while I was in a trance, I had this feeling of having attained uh, unity with some power out there and all of the different things in this world, uh, human beings and uh, trees and objects and good and evil and everything blended together into this unity and I felt really good. Or if you were to say, as many people write, I saw a long dark tunnel and a light at the end of it and slowly I approached that light and it got brighter and brighter until finally I stood in the presence of a brilliant light and I felt overwhelmed by joy and peace. Now if a person says that they experienced that, we, we should not and we cannot deny the reality of their experience. But having said that, just because an experience is real, does not mean that the explanation of that experience is necessarily real. Truth relates to the explanation of an experience, not the fact of an experience. And we need to keep that in mind. Why is that so? For the simple reason that similar experiences can often be traced to different explanations. So what do you do? When the explanations are different and the experiences are similar, that automatically tells us that both the experiences are not necessarily self-validating as far as truth is concerned. For example, in many of the Eastern religions, they will tell you that the height of religious experience comes when we attain this thing called unity with the soul of the universe, however you want to phrase it, whether you call it God or super-consciousness or what have you. And in that state, all of the apparent diversity around us, the differences between human beings, the differences between good and evil, between inanimate and animate objects, they all fuse into this unity that is beyond all of the diversity. And many of the saints and the mystics of Eastern religions will tell you, in this manner they have experienced God. Now we can't question the experience, but I want you to listen to this experience of a man by the name of John Custis. He wrote this once. He said, I feel so close to God so inspired by his spirit that in a sense I am God. I see the future, I plan the universe, I save mankind. I am utterly and completely immortal. I am even male and female. The whole universe, animate and inanimate, past, present and future is within me. All nature and life, all spirits are cooperating and connected with me. All things are possible. I am in a sense identical with all spirits from good to evil. I reconcile good and evil. I create light, darkness, worlds and universes. Now that, if you wrote, if you described that in India, 
would be almost indistinguishable from the experience of many of the Indian mystics who have attained unity consciousness. The interesting thing was John Custance was a certified lunatic and he had that experience in one of his states of manic depression. And later on, Custance realized that even though this experience of divinity seemed so real and self-validating, which is what they always claim, it wasn't true. Later on, Custance wrote about his experience. It was all a dream, a vision, pure imagination. If there is such a thing as imagination, I know perfectly well, in fact, that I have no power, I am of no particular importance, and have made rather an awful mess of my life. I am an ordinary man and a miserable sinner. The point of telling the story is simply this. You have two identical experiences. One that comes from a state of lunacy and the other that comes from deep meditation. And I could read you yet another man, William James, in a book called Varieties of Religious Experience, had a very similar experience of the unifying of all the diversities around him while he was high on nitrous oxide drugs. So the challenge before us is if similar experiences can be produced by drugs, by lunacy and by meditation, we have to come to the conclusion that experience alone can never be a validation for truth. No self-respecting orthodox Eastern teacher would ever recommend that you choose drugs or choose lunacy in order to attain that experience. But on what basis can they then claim that their experience of unity consciousness is necessarily an experience of God? That's why I said we cannot deny the reality of experience, but we must test the explanation or the basis of that experience. Let me uh, uh, develop this a little bit more systematically when it comes to comparing religions. Most people, when they talk about religion, will talk about experience. But underlying every religion, there is a philosophical basis or a worldview, a set of doctrines, uh, teachings, etc., on which they base their whole religion. Even those who say they have no doctrine do have a doctrine. Uh, during this time when I was in India, I happened to be reading, I tried to read the newspapers every morning that I was there, because wherever possible, I like to use current illustrations in my messages right from their own culture. And one of the biggest newspapers in the southern part of the country is called the Hindu. And in the back page, they have a column that analyzes the sayings of some of the great Hindu philosophers. Well, one morning, one morning they had... Uh, quotations from one of the greatest of, of the Hindu philosophers of modern times, a man by the name of Swami Vivekananda. And in this they quoted him as saying that every human being has a tremendous potential for good in this world. And that there is no such thing as sin. Man is not a sinner. He only makes mistakes. And then later on he went on to encourage the people to do good and to work hard. And then he said that is more important than any doctrine. The only trouble is he didn't realize that the earlier statements about the nature of man were doctrinal statements. When you say that man is not a sinner but man makes mistakes, right or wrong, that's a doctrinal statement. When you say that every man has potential for good or evil, right or wrong, that's a doctrinal statement. So doctrine is inescapable. Every religion has underlying it a doctrinal basis. Now on the basis of that doctrine, you are encouraged by the teachers of that system to have a certain experience. So that Christianity would call you to conversion. People who have had that experience or people who are seeking that experience will join together and form a fellowship like we are here tonight. And people who are involved in a fellowship will usually follow a certain kind of lifestyle. That's common for all religions including Christianity. Now as I said earlier we cannot criticize the fact of a person's experience. We have to accept it. 
nor can you criticize a fellowship. There are all kinds of religions that have fellowships where people care for one another. We are not unusual in that. Nor can we criticize a lifestyle. There are many, many communities that have a lifestyle that is even more austere, even more challenging, even more committed than many of ours would be. What we have to do when it comes to a question of truth is not focus on experience, not focus on fellowship, not focus on lifestyle. We have to focus on the underlying philosophical basis for it. And the kind of questions we have to ask ourselves is, if the philosophical basis is different, but the experiences are, the, are similar, then we cannot say the experiences are both true, just because they are similar. Another question we can ask ourselves is, is the experience consistent with the philosophy? For example, some philosophies teach that God is silence. If God is silence in the philosophy, and a person says, I experienced a voice of God, that cannot be God, according to their own system, because they've just said that God is silent. Similarly, if a philosophy believes that man is not a sinner, then if they say, I have experienced forgiveness, that is also inconsistent. Because you can only be forgiven if you've done something to be forgiven of. A person who's not a sinner cannot have a true forgiveness experience, although they may have gone through something that felt like forgiveness. So those are some of the ways we can ask questions. Somebody might come back and say, but just a minute, philosophical bases only look different. They are only superficially different. If you really explore that root, what every religious philosophy says, they all teach the same things. And usually they mean in the realm of morals and ethics. But actually exactly the opposite is true. Philosophy is only superficially similar at the level of morals and ethics. When you come down to the real fundamental questions of life and what answers they give, you will find that they give not even closely similar answers. They are radically different, so different as to be mutually exclusive. Let me just give you an illustration of what I think are the four fundamental questions of life and illustrate from three major systems how different the answers are in each case. And with that, we'll come to the conclusion of our first uh, question. The four fundamental questions of life are, first of all, how did we get here? The whole issue of existence. Secondly, what went wrong with us? The issue of evil and suffering. Thirdly, how can we set it right? The issue of salvation. And fourthly, where is it all going? The issue of destiny. So existence, evil and suffering, salvation and destiny, those are the four big questions of life. And I'm going to use Christianity, Eastern mysticism, and materialism as three different philosophical bases for answering these four questions. And you will see how they are fundamentally different. We know the Christian answer to creation. The, sorry, existence. The Christian answer to existence is creation. We came about animate and inanimate beings as a result of a deliberate act of creation by an infinite, personal, moral, rational God. He is not identified with his creation. He is separate from the creation, although he is actively involved in sustaining that creation and keeping it together. Man specifically has been made in the image of God, but man is not God. That's the Christian position on creation. Eastern religions say that God, man and the world is not a creation of God, but an extension of the very essence of God himself. God is conceived not as personal, moral and rational, but God is conceived primarily as pure consciousness. And why did this pure consciousness bother to extend itself 
into this diversity that we call the universe. Another principle, at least in Hinduism, and I think it is there in Buddhism as well, is called Maya, or the principle of illusion. That the supreme consciousness acting under the principle of Maya or illusion projected itself into these various things that we call the diverse universe, human beings, objects, good, evil, etc., but they are only relatively real, if not illusory. Behind them all is a transcendent unity. And man is not only made in the image of God, man is God if he or she only knows it. That's the Eastern position. Materialism, of course, we all know very well. Everything came about, there's no God at all. Everything came about from a big bang as a total product of time and chance collisions over eons and eons and eons of time. <coughs> so... Obviously, you can see that those three are very radically different answers to the question of existence. How about the problem of evil and suffering? The Christian answer is related to what we call the fall. And we looked at that this morning in detail, so I won't repeat it. But basically, as a result of the first man and woman's deliberate act of disobedience, those five faces of death came upon human beings to various extents. In Eastern religions, generally there is no definition of evil per se, because Sin is, def is not included in the original uh, system of how things began. Suffering is explained by the whole rebirth cycle. We suffer in this world because of certain things that we did in the previous world. As far as materialism is concerned, of course, evil is, they ought not to speak about evil, although sometimes they do. Because as far as they are concerned, there is no such thing as right and wrong. Uh, everything is just a socializing process. Most of the evil and the suffering and the difficulty in this world is either because of childhood problems uh, or because everything is just simply relative anyway. And morals, like everything else, will change over a period of time. That's materialism's view of good and evil. How about salvation? How can we set it all right? The Christian answer is very clear. It acknowledges that man is a sinner before her holy God and is under the wrath of God. It acknowledges that he or she can do absolutely nothing to satisfy the demands of a holy God. He or she acknowledges that what they could not do, God has done in the person of Jesus Christ. And on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins. Through faith in that death on our behalf, we become Christians, are regenerated by the Spirit of God. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's way of certifying that the crucifixion was indeed sufficient. That's the Christian answer. The Eastern mystical answer to salvation is to realize that there is no such thing as sin but that bondage consists in believing that the diversity that we see around us is real. And the whole emphasis is to attain consciousness with the soul of the universe or the pure consciousness, or unity with this pure consciousness. How do they do it? In various ways. The path of devotion, which in Hinduism is called bhakti, the path of service, which is called karma, and the path of knowledge, which is called jnana. Those are three of the many ways in which one can achieve this unity consciousness. As far as the materialistic thing is concerned, there is no need for salvation. Primary salvation is to get rid of all religious notions. And through science, you educate people and you bring in utopia. That's at least ho the hopeful idea of materialism. Again, you can see that in each case, the answers are very, very different. And finally, as to the question of where is it all going, Christianity says there is one life to live, and after that there is judgment which will determine where we are going to spend eternity. Either eternity with God becoming more and more like Him, or an eternity away from God becoming more and more the way we want to live in this world, apart from God, whatever that may be. For Eastern religions, 
each life is followed by another life and another life no one can know how much with successive degrees of purification until eventually we get reabsorbed into the unity uh, into this pure consciousness and we lose our individual identities as far as materialism is concerned of course you live this life and then you just disintegrate how about corporately what about the destiny of history for christianity history is linear we are moving towards a time when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our god and of his christ when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that jesus is lord so it is a linear view of history in eastern mysticism history is cyclical there's a whole series of births and rebirths until eventually you end up with what you had in the beginning all of us being drawn back into brahma and in materialism of course they don't know it's all chance it could it could be disaster it could be utopia nobody knows now it may take all kinds of intelligence to understand these systems in great detail but it takes very little intelligence to understand that the answers are different every one of us can see very clearly that the answers to these fundamental questions of life are not only slightly different they aren't even close and that means either they are all wrong or one of them is right more than one simply cannot be right so when a christian is charged with being narrow minded what you or i should say is just a minute we're not really that different i think we are willing to face the facts that the ideal option everybody is right isn't available and therefore we are willing to do the hard work of examining the facts to see which one seems to be the most consistent and the christian has come to the conclusion that that is the most consistent position and if the man of the who holds the eastern mystical view or the materialistic view is honest he or she can go on believing what they believe but they must not at the same time say that christianity is also right which is what some of them say in other words what i'm really driving at is this each position is so unique that if honestly held everybody has to be equally arrogant do you understand that because these positions are so different if a person truly believes in evolution and materialism if a person truly believes in an eastern mystical system if a person truly believes in christianity that automatically means the others cannot be true i mean how can you have one birth and many births at the same time either one or the other is true either history is linear or it is cyclical or it is chaotic it can't be more than one either man is a sinner deserving uh, punishment and needing redemption or man is not a sinner you can have one or the other but you cannot have both so in the ultimate analysis the charge of being narrow minded shouldn't be applied only to the true christian it really applies to every single person of every single religion because if they really believe it they are saying we are right and though they don't like to say it they are implying that the other person is wrong because the fundamental philosophy is different stop there there are people of course now have a right to examine each of these systems and see which one of them is true if many are different we are then forced to ask the question which one is true how do we know which is true and in the next several weeks we're going to be addressing many of the questions that people raise that make it appear that christianity is not consistent and we're going to look at some of those in the process i may touch on the problems of some of these others as well but all i wanted to show you this day is a basic framework that you can use to answer the charge that christianity is narrow minded and the bottom line answer is yes we are but everybody else has to be as well because the fun answers to the fundamental questions of life are not even close they are very very different and i think if we can take people that far 
it will hopefully get them to the point where they have to examine alternatives.